following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. My name is Kyoko Katayama, and um, I've been a member of Common Ground for about 13 years. Um, and I serve as a chair of the ethics committee here. Um, on November 14th of last year, 2011, I set out to live as if I had six months to live. That this body would slip like a crumpled coat on the floor and I would disappear. So by mid-May of 2012, I would be gone. Well, I didn't die, as you can see, uh, unless I'm a ghost. And if I'm a ghost, I'm here to haunt you, <laughs> scare you into realizing your own goodness. <laughs> The, the title of the talk is called Living a True Inheritance. Um, so I'm here to report back to you some of what I have learned from living as if I had six months to live. And it's kind of appropriate. It's Memorial Day weekend. So, <laughs> so on that morning of November 14th last year, I spent some time reflecting on things I wanted to bring closure to and on how I would want to live for the next six months. So I made a list of to-dos and a list of to-bes. And for the top of the list, I remember writing, become and stay current on the bills, contracts, taxes, and communications. And further down, organize all the photos, my journals, I have 36 volumes of journals, and let go of those that are not essential, etc. And of course, lower in the list, that quintessential list of clean the garage, clean the basement, <laughs> clean my attic. <sighs> and for the how I want to be section, I was pleased to note that how I, how I want to live for the next six months did not seem radically different from the current lifestyle. It's that I thought I would be more focused and I would live more intentionally. Well, meditating on the cushion every day did not make my list. Instead, showing up to every moment with love and attentiveness did as one of the guiding aspirations. I wanted to remember every day how short and precious this life really is. I wanted my children and friends to have the wisest and most loving part of me so that when I would be gone, they become part of that which sustained them at difficult times in their lives. Well, there were more, but after a few weeks, I forgot the details of the list. 
Yet the thought of my own disappearance has increasingly become a plodding companion on my journey. And from time to time, I noted a quiet countdown that was happening of how much time I had left till May 13th, 2012. The winter months were difficult with the holidays that made awareness of deaths and losses in my life really poignant. And in January, I got one of those five-week-long respiratory infection with cough and phlegm and snot, and my nose was bled, and I was, oh. I finally bowed to the direction of the forest and apologized to the trees for the boxes of Kleenex I used up. <laughs> I'm sorry, tree. I had little energy when I was sick, and concentration was poor. It was a hard winter. I went on living, though, mindful of impermanence, mindful of the truth of sickness, old age, and death, and to my relief, warm weather and health returned. And with that, more energy and focus. So on May 14th, just a couple weeks ago, I had a curious awareness that I'm alive. Um, I was not dead. And I was alive to reflect on things I practiced and learned from living as if I had six months to live. I practice asking the right questions the first thing in the morning. The title of my talk, Living a True Inheritance, comes from a poem by David White called What to Remember When Waking. And it begins like this. In that first hardly noticed moment to which you wake, coming back to this life from the other more secret movable and frighteningly honest world where everything began. There is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you begin your plans. In that first hardly noticed moment to which you wake, coming back to this life from the other more secret, movable and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you begin your plans. Upon waking in the morning, I laid quietly for a while and asked, what really matters to me? What makes me feel alive? Well, life is inherently stressful. We feel that we have, to get, we have to get so many things done in a day. We have to get ready for work. We have to pay bills, taxes. We have to attend the family and friends. And you know, even if everything on your to-do list is crossed out, you notice the new to-dos keep on coming at you like waves. Have you noticed that? Or am I the only one? <laughs> And even if you have financial problems, your financial problems are completely solved and you have nothing but completely satisfying, wonderful relationships, 
you still have to get dressed and figure out what to eat and where to get that food. And even if you're pleased with your clothing and you're no longer hungry or thirsty, you still have to launder your clothes and we all have to go to the bathroom. So it's easy to start the day planning as if that would really ease our inherent anxiety of living, right? But that small opening into the new day closes the moment you begin your plans. And I have nothing against planning. I laid still and took in that light of morning. Sometimes it was just a faint suggestion of coming dawn. Other times I saw the young oak leaves shimmered in golden light outside my bedroom window. I could sense that small opening if I didn't move, if I didn't just get busy with the day. What matters to me more than anything else? What makes me alive? What are my heart's true desire? These were the questions I asked at the liminal opening into the new day. Show up and listen. Listen to that subtle voice from that opening. When these kinds of questions were repeated, the priorities for our life become more and more clear. It's the clarity of your true priorities that actually help us to make our plans and our to-do list. So that way, our plans, our desires, our actions all become aligned. And when we are aligned, that's when we are efficient. And when we are stressed, we're in a whole different state. When we believe in the illusion of future, we distract ourselves from unpleasant things. We want to avoid them. And we grasp onto pleasant and easy things. We don't want to let them go. And we don't notice invisible yet obvious truths like through the millennia, every single human being who was born died. And everyone in this room will die sooner or later. It's not a morbid thought, not to me. It wakes us to the truth of impermanence and compels us to ask, if so then, what really matters more than anything else? Others who have done this similar exercise of six months to live sometimes were surprised to realize that they would quit their job if they had only six months to live. And, and those were people who loved their job. But the priorities shift when we, when we listen to the truth of our impermanence. And some others chose to pour their energy into their work in the hope of leaving a lasting legacy through their work. 
And the other question, what makes me feel alive? Actually came out of noticing that it seemed that a part of me died when my husband died a year ago. I felt numb and gray a lot. I had this taste of greedy dryness, not in my mouth, but like in my being, like I was buried alive in the sand. I have to remind myself, though he's dead, I'm not. I still have life to live, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant, this life without my beloved. I witnessed my numbness, my sadness, my confusion about who I would be. I showed up to these difficult states after a loss. John O'Donohue, the Irish poet, said, Beauty, the presence of which brings most alive in you. Beauty, the presence of which brings most alive in you. So I thought, if I could experience beauty in the midst of all these difficult states, I would be okay. So I practiced noticing small beauty in my everyday life. And amazingly, it was not hard to find in, in the changing color of the sky, in how the, the tree grew, how the early bulbs came up, the birds. Even just looking at the field of nothing but snow. So I asked, is feeling alive different from being mindful? When you are fully paying attention to the immediacy of the present moment, as we have just done during our meditation, is it possible to not notice how alive you are? Does noticing beauty relate to being mindful? These are the questions that need asking every day. What makes you feel your aliveness? What matters to you? Are you able to notice beauty that surrounds you? The Buddha asks three monks, how many times do you think about death? And one answered, I think about it every day. And Buddha said, not enough. <laughs> and the other said, I think about it every time I eat food. Not enough. And the third one said, with every in-breath and with every out-breath. He nodded. Very good. As death became my companion, I gleamed the inside of this is it-ness. Now this, this uh, inside of this is it is really hard to explain. It's, it's this is it. It's not something else, not some other time, not some promise of happiness, 
in the different circumstances. Not in six months, not next month, not tomorrow, not next time. This is it. In this moment is the only chance I have. The future does not exist. Time is an illusion of mind. This is it. This moment, right here, right now, is all that there is. When what matters to you become clear, then we need to seize that moment, this is it moment, and live it. Live what matters to you, because this moment is it. It used to hear my mind that talked like this. Oh, I need to do this. Um, okay, I'll do it some other time. And then when I forget what I was supposed to do. And of course the next to do appears. And asking the question of what matters to me helped me to know how important the particular task was or was not. Have you noticed how particular tasks tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger when you avoid it? And pretty soon it becomes a huge elephant in the middle of the room. And you're not living in your life, in your own space anymore, because the elephant's taking up your space. And you're just tiptoeing around that elephant. So. Another practice I did was to discern the true size and color of each of my to-dos. When you listen to that subtle voice that is heard upon waking, you will know that some to-dos are not relevant to your life. They do not contribute to your true happiness. And they do not help you feel more alive. And there are some to-dos you do willingly, because with the discernment comes a willingness to make a commitment to see through the task to its completion. Then the elephant pops like an inflated balloon. Pop, and you claim your space back to live your life. This is it, and what I choose to do this moment has consequences that fan out and cascade into the next moment, and the next, and the next. I said yes when Mark asked me to sub for him, and because I said yes, I'm here sharing my thoughts with you, and because you decided to come today, and I spoke, Something we couldn't imagine before will be unfolding for you and for me as new series of causes and conditions. I could have said to no to Mark, and I could have just stayed at home and tended to my garden, which needed really tending. Instead, I'm here because of my choice, and I tend the garden of a heart with you. What grace it is. 
As to the task of simplifying my life and cleaning up the attic, the basement, the garage, and organize the photos, guess. <laughs> I did not get them done. They are still there waiting for me. You know, it's such a paradox that it takes enormous energy and complexity to simplify our lives. It's a very complex thing to simplify. Stephen Levine, who is the author of many books on death and dying, uh, once said, um, nobody finish their business before they die. And I thought, okay. <laughs> anyway, nevertheless, my house is a bit, tiny bit more organized. And in the process, letting go of things had become easier. I have given away and will continue to give away some of my treasured things, and I will continue to hold the intention of simplifying my life. And I don't know if I have time. Or talk fast. Um, I think I'm going to skip this section. There were other, well, no, that's the end, so maybe I won't skip. Okay. <laughs> okay, I just talk a little faster. <laughs> Another insight I gained was about the subtle ways, very subtle ways we suffer. And it's so subtle we don't even know. You know, it's easy to notice the big suffering, like serious illness, the end of relationship or other tragedy. But we, go, we get so accustomed to the small and chronic ways of our own daily suffering that we don't even notice them for what they are. Yet, our daily lives are powerfully conditioned by them, by the suffering we are not attending to. When death becomes your companion, living becomes so intense that you do notice your discomfort more and more. When we are stressed, our bodies contract and our worldview shrinks. Suffering is a closing down of your body, of your heart, your spirit. Unattended suffering has its own momentum and cascading effects. When we suffer, the whole world suffers, have you noticed? And so I paid attention to my small suffering. And I noticed the particular ways my suffering was unfolding. I tended to be overly responsible. And I carried a sense of heavy burden from that around me. When I was in second grade, my second grade, grade teacher told my mom in the parent-teacher conference that that little Kyoko has such strong sense of responsibility. And when my mother came home, told me with pride that. And I thought it must be a good thing to be so responsible. So over time, it became part of my identity. A good person is a responsible person. Anyway, one day, like a veil had lifted, 
I saw clearly that the identity had become my prison. I had an insight that responsibility really means an ability to respond with an open heart and discerning mind. And I really had nothing to do with my identity that congealed as a kind of a rule of how I, I was supposed to be to behave in the world. And instead of true responsibility, I felt trapped by the mandate of the habitual mind. I observed how these mental tendencies contracted my body, my mind, my world, my heart, as if like it was like a tightly wounded fist. Imagine trying to hug somebody with a fist, or wash dishes, or drive a car with a fist, with fists. It's impossible to get things done in fists. We need the pliability and nimbleness of our open hands to take care of people and things, to hug, to drive, to wash dishes, to rub your dog. So I let go, or rather I made a strong intention to pay attention if I experienced any sense of burden and contraction in my body. And this was a way my suffering had actually become support towards being in the world with my open heart for my action to spring forth out of true caring of a person or a project and not out of obligation and not out of worry to be seen as a responsible good person. Well, there are other practices and insights from the experiment like about patience, the place of love, importance of community, but that will have to be for another Dharma talk as our time is coming to an end. Joseph Goldstein, in, in his instruction of nine minutes meditation for extremely busy people, <laughs> I'm so glad he recognized that they are, re are really extremely busy people, oh my God. He, he suggested that of that nine minutes, you spend three minutes on the body and the death of the body. He says, this is a powerful reminder that our body is not self. It's simply going through its own process. Remember, these beautiful lungs in this body will one day stop breathing. This vital heart will stop beating. This mysterious organ called brain will stop receiving and sending its neurons, the gazillions of them. This is the only thing we can be certain. And it will happen to everyone without exception. And that's a good thing. For life and death are one. And life is good, and so is death. And if you're afraid, remember why you meditate, why you come to common ground. Mingyu Rinpoche said, meditation is about learning to recognize our basic goodness in the immediacy of the present moment, 
Meditation is about learning to recognize our basic goodness in the immediacy of the present moment. And then nurturing this recognition until it seeps into the very core of our being. All you need is a sincere desire to open your heart and mind to the present moment. And if you're still afraid, remember, the Buddha taught the loving-kindness chant to the monks who were so afraid of the, the, the forest spirit that haunted them. Opening to the goodness in you and in others and cultivate opening your heart with kindness, like loosening that fist, are the most powerful salve to fear that we all have. Live your true inheritance, that is your goodness and love. And love is a currency on this brief, mysterious, wonderful journey called life. So, I have just a few minutes for question and answer before the children come. We all have the diagnosis <laughs> that I'm going to die, <laughs> but I didn't have a diagnosis, I, 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 as far as I knew. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't in response to some serious condition. Thank you for your concern. <laughs> Uh, 
um, I think it's part of doing the exercise is to ask that question because you may have only six months to live and if so how would you live you know part of maybe living six months to live maybe continue to go to work because you love your family and you want to you want to support them or maybe you have somebody else to support you so you could just really delve into that six months and just I don't have answer for you, it's, but, but it's a good question to keep on asking. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The, the poem is called um, What to Remember When Waking by David White. Do we have children coming today or not? Yeah. 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 Yes. I just want to tell you how grateful I am to God. It was 
Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.